Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I'm your host, Jeanette Linford, and I am here today with an absolute legend in the property world. It's Mr. Stephen Pardo, the founding managing partner of Domo Developments. But more than that, he's an absolute stellar businessman, entrepreneur, international. We're going to talk about everything. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much. We finally <laughs> made it at last. We meet regularly and we never actually get around to doing this. So. I know, it's taken us ages. Amazing so. introduction. Thank you. Yeah, well, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> Feel it slightly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's all good. So, um, no, I'm excited about this because we've known each other for oh, a while, not not mass, about a year probably. Yeah, yeah, year and a half now. Yeah, so I'm always uh, full of admiration for what you're doing in property, but also broader business. So I think we've got a lot in common. Very true. Um, but yeah, let's kick off with your journey, Stephen. Oh, taking it back. <laughs> so, um, well, I left. I left school. After A levels, didn't go to uni. Actually, I was I was planning to go to university, and funny enough, I I was actually going to study computer science, which I probably still don't know what it was to this day. So um, I did, and I ended up going into into sales really for two or three years. So went <clears throat> work for my brother-in-law for um, almost a year and a half in recruitment. Actually, back in the day, sorry. <clears throat> I'll cut that. So I worked for my brother-in-law in recruitment uh, back in the day for a couple of years. Moved from recruitment to uh, a, a medical recruitment company and then ended up selling surgical instruments, funny enough. So I was actually a, a field sales rep and used to sell surgical instruments to hospitals and theatres and surgeons and so on. So a bit of a strange. I didn't have a medical background, but I was quite good at sales. So, And um, yeah, my whole background really was sales. And at that point, a friend of the family had some natural sandstone mines in India. They were trying to sell some products into the UK and some stone. And I was typical field sales rep, I'd sort of hit my targets quite quick, didn't really have much to do most of the month. And uh, so I said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll help you out. So um, just started selling containers of stone really. And the meetings were quite easy. And I thought, oh, this is, this is strange. This is a bit easy. And um, so at that point, I just decided to, to jack my job in and, and set up a business importing stone. So started flying to India, didn't have a clue about natural stone, started importing uh, granite basically, some big granite slabs that you or, or the listeners may know from worktops and so on and kitchen worktops. Just started bringing in big container loads of granite slabs and just started wholesaling them originally. And that, and then I was driving the truck myself, I was unloading stuff, getting involved. So proper sort of startup business with one person. And then that led on to us importing in tiles, so granite tiles and marble tiles. Then it led on to people wanting us to cut stuff for them and do stuff a bit more bespoke. And then moved the business, actually, it became, started to become proper business at that point. So I moved it, the warehouse over to Slough, bought my first machine. So we started buying actually machinery then to cut up the stone and wow. stone masons and so on. Started going to China at that point. Um, this was probably before, before the days of Alibaba. So it was, uh, yeah, it was the Wild West. You'd sort of land in China. I'd, I'd 
get a train for three hours, get in a car for seven hours into the depths of China and, and, and basically go and source these products, really. I had an agent out there. No one spoke English at that point. It was, it was uh, when I look back, it was quite fun, but it was, it was quite brave back in the day. I was young and a bit naive, so I, I think I got away with it. And um, yeah, and then <clears throat> the business grew from there, really. We just, we started doing kitchen worktops. So we manufactured everything ourselves, started installing them ourselves, uh, started doing restaurants and bars and so on. That led on to people wanting us to do their kitchens then at that point. So then we started displaying kitchens. We opened a showroom, started doing this. And then, so we, we almost then covered the whole thing. So we had interior designers in the staff then. We had stonemasons. We had our own stock. We had our own warehouse, our stone yard. And then I was traveling back and forth to Dubai at that point with a friend who used to live out there. And his dad had moved his business there. And Dubai seemed, this was back in what, 2004, five, six, around there. So Dubai was mm. really pumping at that point. And it uh, looked like a really interesting place to go. So we took a bit of a, a punt back in the day in 2008, nine. So after the crash, we got the, the rights basically to some German brands of furniture uh, in the UAE. So we had the rights to the country, which was a kitchen brand. And then it led on to a, a interior brand, a furniture brand, an upholstery brand. And um, yeah, talking about your podcast, it was, uh, it was very, uh, very bold and uh, bold move looking back. It was quite brave actually doing it in 2009, straight after the recession. And then yeah. actually looking back now, it was probably a brilliant move because we got rent cheap at that point out there. There was less competition, there was less demand. Um, and it just gave us a chance to really hit the ground running and, and move. Yeah. So the business over there evolved into, yeah, quite a big, big business really, turned into pretty much the highest uh, sort of luxury high-end brand out there for kitchens, wardrobes, interiors, showrooms, warehouses, staff, imported staff from the UK to there because it was quite quite backwards in the sense of carpentry skills and things like that. And um, yeah, I opened up the whole Middle East, Africa. I used to do lots of jobs in Africa. Started traveling quite a bit to random countries I probably wouldn't have done. And, um, and then during all of this, I probably, I started realizing that, that that really sort of stuff like leveraging, stuff like compounding, stuff like my time, the value I put on my time, the value I put on what I'm spending my time on, my family at that point, that I had some young kids coming in at that point. It changed a little bit where I started. I'd already always owned property, but only really in my personal name, not not professionally. Mm. And then probably 2015, 16, paid for some education, paid a training course, went and saw some property training, won't mention the name. And then uh, I decided to set up a limited company and a proper business and start investing in property professionally while the other businesses were still going. So it gave me quite a bit of flexibility at that point to to not need an income from property, but mm. get involved in it. And um, so, yeah. And, and at that point, I'd really started falling out of love, really, with businesses that maybe required a lot of stock, a lot of warehousing, a lot of machinery, a lot of risk, mm. um, quite a lot of skilled staff bigger premises, like heavy overheads, heavy fixed costs. Mm. So I was starting to pull out of those businesses actually. So the UK, we sold off and moved out of that in probably 2017, Dubai similar at the minute. So then it gave property a chance to, to sort of boom at that point. And other other parts I get involved in. So yeah, there's other bits now. I do some business consulting nowadays. We do some non-exec roles, do some board advisory roles and really get, it's things I quite enjoy. Um, 
and property really as well. We have a couple of property companies here now, so two or three companies and then a maintenance company, some other bits that's growing from that. So yeah, that was in a nutshell, in a very quick five, 10 minutes, that, that's my journey really. And that's where I am now, now I'm in the Yorkshire Dales. <laughs> exactly. But you see, a lot of that is around, around the business journey, which is brilliant because if you think about how you started off in sales way back and those like core skills that you just had, like that sounds like a great <clears throat> intuition for business. So thinking about your family background and, and the overall yes. context, how did you become decide that the entrepreneurial life was, was for you? Because it's not yeah. for everyone. Yeah. You know, was that because your parents were sort of in that world or, you know, where did you get that flair from? Because a lot of people just would be scared to death to yes. do what you've done. Great question. Yeah, great question. Not, 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 not decidedly from my family. I don't really have my, my parents are not, not entrepreneurs or business owners. No one really in my family is, to be honest. So I did 100% from my own family, my own parents, the, the work ethic okay. and the graft. And my dad used to take me on a paper round at 6 a.m. every morning for, for a year when I was 12. And that, that work ethic of understanding that you, you do actually need to graft. I know there's a lot of people that say you can leverage everything out and that, that's great. But I actually, initially, I think for the first 10, 15 years, yeah. you do need to graft. And so I learned that 100%. I'd probably say biggest influence really was my my, my brother-in-law, my ex-brother-in-law from my sister's side. Uh, he, he was the first person I went to work with. He owned a recruitment company. And he was just absolutely unbelievable in sales, unbelievable in driven ability, like forward moving, pushing forward. I mean, the first, it used to hammer me. I was six months in that job. I just left A-levels. I was 50 to 100 cold calls a day. If people were shouting at me and putting the phone down at me, it made me ring them back. He set me targets on everything. He, like the whole motion of uh, pushing forward and and just n- not really settling for what was there. Mm. That was quite, quite inspirational, to be honest. And I didn't realize at the time. I probably look back now and I think, wow, I've, I learned a massive amount from him because every... Every job I did after that and every move I did myself after that was very easy because he worked me so hard. Yeah. And I think he was doing it for a reason and maybe he saw something in me that I could follow him. But he was definitely, for me, he was my inspiration. And he, when I look back now, I learned a huge amount from him. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just just it made, it made sales and made life very easy after being worked that hard. And also his, his ambition and his driven every day was just about pushing forward. It didn't matter how fast we were going, we were just going forward and that was it. Nothing was stopping us. We were going there, whatever. And mm. that, that is a good, that stood me in good stead, to be honest. Yeah, massive. And, <clears throat> and, and I guess also the other thing about sales, because a lot of people just absolutely hate sales, don't they? They, they, they dread, you know, <laughs> selling it. Oh, it's just awful. It feels a bit dirty and a bit like, you know, hard sell. What was your, what's your attitude to sales? I don't, I think everyone sells, to be honest. I just don't think they really admit it. So yeah. <laughs> I think if if I'm if I'm sitting here with you and I want to talk about a holiday, I'm selling my opinion. I'm a doctor yeah. selling his opinion on on his yeah. his diagnosis. So I think for me, I think sales maybe is a word like you say people don't like, but I don't think most people realise they all are selling. Everyone is selling at every point. And I think if you get comfortable with that, it probably serves you in good stead. You may not mm. be selling a product for. I buy it for ten and sell it for twenty, but you are selling something every day of your life, and that, and for me, I think it's a it's a basis of almost every job. I think if you can nail that, the rest of it really you could be taught. Actually, sales, if you just get that internally and are comfortable with it, I think is a great 
great skill to have. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and and just switching the mind, isn't it, to say selling is serving because otherwise, yeah. you, if you if you've actually got a great product or service and you and you're the best kept secret, yes. well then you're actually doing the customer a disservice by not you know not yeah, encouraging true. them to to make a, you know to, to buy something from you. So no, that's definitely a good lesson. Let's talk about the international bit, right? Because yeah. um, well, I, as you know, I when I was the MD of the emerging markets for two years, I was doing business in China, India. So when you were talking, it I was thinking, oh my god, yeah, I remember those. <laughs> Those days, I remember those days, and it is it is a very very different experience to work internationally. And and I think sometimes you talked about being a bit naive, maybe, yes. and, and not realizing at the time. I was a bit like that when I went to Russia. I, thought, I didn't consider the safety side of things, and yet people were being shot all over the bloody place in Moscow when I was there. You know, <laughs> but I was there to do to do the job I was doing for Tui and what have you. And. Uh, I think the naivety part was was definitely something that I had as well. But from your cultural experience with China, India, Dubai, the Middle East, how has that helped you in in business in general? Would you say? Yeah, good question. It's um, I'd probably say you just I feel a bit more of a rounded, a bit more worldly person, if that makes sense. Mm. I think. I think it's a bit like when we look at a business, you, you hear these phrases of working in a business, not on a business. And I see that quite similar with, with when you live in the UK, you, you're sort of in the UK, you're not looking at it on yeah. the UK from above. And I think when, you, when you're pulled out of it, I used to come back to the UK, I'd travel back and forth everywhere. And I, suddenly I was out of the day-to-day grind and everything just looked a bit different. And I would question stuff and I think, hang on, this is not this is not right. Like, why are we doing this? Or why are we doing this? And what? And it was just purely because I'd been removed from the day-to-day life. So I think for me, you definitely learn cultures. You definitely learn business etiquette. You definitely learn the way you can deal with people. Mm. Um, and also, you you just have some really good experiences as well. Like, like Some of the stuff was crazy, but it was just a really good fun. And when you look back, it was, yeah, it's amazing stories you'll have. But I think just... Just being more worldly, even my even my kids, they they lived in the Middle East for sort of four or five years of their life. They they're much more comfortable with all nationalities, all creeds, all religions, mm. all countries, traveling, differences that you wouldn't always see if we just lived in Berkshire our whole life. So I think just worldly and my business etiquette has helped mm. and me being a bit more open, to be mm. honest, to actually going. I mean, I used to go to East Africa quite a lot. I've been to random places in the Middle East. And before I'd gone there, I mean, I went for a, a wedding at one point in Beirut. I, I mean, most people in the UK still think Beirut's a war zone. So, yeah. And it was the most amazing weekend I've, I've had. So I think just being more open to everything, opportunities, business, people, and just being more that we are quite a close-knit world now. We're quite close, maybe not at this moment in time, yeah. but yeah, usually we are. Yeah, and, and I think for me, having that sort of... How do you, you know, when you've got those cultural differences and there are a lot of, of do's and don'ts, aren't they, if you want to get on. Um, and I think certainly as a, if you go in as a Western European into those parts of the world, expecting to apply the same approach, yeah. you're going to fail big time. Um, so patience is key. Patience is key. Having a long time frame. Um, I think just being very respectful of, of you're in someone else's country, you're on someone else's patch. And therefore, it's your responsibility to adapt and change. And I think for Very me, true. I found 
my communication skills improved because I was probably far more emotionally aware. Emotional intelligence was much higher because of being aware of those cultural differences and wanting to make sure the respect was there and that I didn't offend anyone. And of course, wanted to get on and do business and make money at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, right? But then I think when you then throw yourself into any situation, you're much more attuned. Your radar's up to pick up, you know, sort of those nuances, which maybe you wouldn't, I wouldn't have, have been so astute about, I don't think, if I'd not had those experiences no i agree Completely yeah agree. so what was the craziest experience you can think of <laughs> God, I, I, I had a journey once so we we i was uh i was down at a place called guangzhou in china and that's quite famous now it wasn't really back then and um we needed to go to a factory so i had an i had an agent that used to set up <clears throat> three or four of the best factories of products we were trying to buy we were trying to buy um, lengths of uh, timber worktop at that time, solid wood worktops, like oak worktops. And um, so we got in a car and the hotel, again, we really struggled with communication at that point. It was probably talking about Westerners. There's maybe three Westerners in the whole of this this hotel or area. Mm. And then we went to a place called Foshan, which was about a seven, eight hour drive. And I'd never even heard of this city. or t- I thought it was a town. We turned up and there was there was like, 11 million people there. It was the size of London. <laughs> I've never even heard of it. And there, probably there was only two or three Westerners in the whole city out of 11 million people. So no one spoke English, no one did any of this. We managed to, we managed to, basically at that point, it was 100, uh, I think it was R&B back in the day. Yeah, yeah. But 100 R&B was maybe five pounds equivalent. You could almost do anything with that back then. Like you could, if you gave that to someone, they'd pretty much look after you all day. It was, there was nothing you couldn't buy with a hundred. So we were trying to just give someone money or something to just try and get us a taxi or get us a car to take us, to take us the addresses. We had some addresses, but our writing was bad. They couldn't really understand. We eventually got this car and it took us another four or five hours to get to this factory in the middle of nowhere. And, um, just blessing this taxi drive. Just as we got, we must have been five hundred meters, six hundred meters from the factory, and his car broke down. <laughs> he pulled on the side of the road, and he was trying to point to the factory where it was. So we just got out and walked, and then uh, to this day, I don't really know what happened with him because they sent someone else five hours away to come and get us, but we didn't pay any extra money. It was like five pounds for about ten hours of work, and then um, we got in this factory and. It, it was hilarious. We, we, you follow this factory through, it was pitch black. I mean, the conditions were terrible. Uh, back then, there was, you had to question some of it. You were like, they, they, I'm imagining China nowadays, I haven't been for a while, but I think they've upped their level because people view it a lot more and so on. But back then, it was, yeah, debatable to say the least. And then what was happening is, as the, as the wooden worktops got through the whole factory, went through the whole process, they came to the end of the sort of production line, as it were, which wasn't really a, a robot production line, it was just hundreds of people. They then the worktops were just going into different boxes for different companies. So there was like, I won't say the name, there was a massive UK chain <laughs> going there. And then there was like a US chain going there. And then we could just logo our boxes and it went in the middle. And not every single product was just the same product for everyone just going into different boxes coming out the back. <laughs> oh my God. And that was, uh, yeah, it was quite an eye opener. So, oh. uh, <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, but you're right. Distance and, and just sort of currency and all of that oh, stuff crazy, is so yeah. different, isn't it? So different. And yeah, <laughs> there's lots of, um, well, I shouldn't probably say this, but there's lots of um, um, oiling of the wheel, shall we say, to get stuff done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Luckily, back then it was quite cheap to be honest. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Um, so, talk about the property a bit more because yes. you've built a massive property um, property business. Well, not just one, obviously, me. multiple businesses. So, so where do you sit today in terms? Because it's, it's not that long ago that you really got into property no, no, in a not. serious way. But well, you've massively. got a huge business, haven't you now? Yeah, it's getting it's getting well, it's getting there. It's quite yeah, you're being quite polite. <laughs> it's getting there. I mean our our goal has still been probably by twenty twenty four we'll have about twenty five million of property. It should net eighty thousand a month by then. That's our goal and that's still always been our goal. So Back in the day when we first started, we picked our investment area, which ended, I live down in Berkshire, um, down in the south, and we picked an area of west of Birmingham, West Midlands. And then, um, yeah, really back in the day, very simple as everyone started, just buying terraced houses, two, three bed terraced houses, single lets, rent them out, 60, 70, 80,000 pound houses. They cash flow really well. Everything, everything from day one for us has always been about positive cash flow. Yeah. Because at the time we set it up, we didn't really need the income from property necessarily, but that was our goal long term. I've been employed or, uh, sorry, self-employed or own my own business for so long, there's no pension for me at the end of it. There's no payout from a company. I'll, no. It's me. So my kid's future is really property for me and the way we set up our group structure and so on. So we were always con- very concerned about positive cash flow of property. So every single let we've ever brought, even if it was a £70,000 house, would net 300 350 a month positive cash flow. So, And that was very important to us. Carried on buying single lets. We still buy single lets to this day, not a massive amount. And then we did some HMOs. Again, small, quite low risk ones. So we'd get a two or three bed terrace house, turn it into a four or five bed HMO. Because for me, there was always a, an exit. If HMOs become heavily regulated or taxed or something goes wrong mm. with them, we can just flip that back to a single let house and it still works and the numbers yeah. still work and we haven't done six on suites and five on suites and mm. we've done them as not on suites because it suited that blue collar worker area where we were so they're quite for me there's always a way out very easily and an AST single let house will always work forever there Yeah. and then um, we own and then from that we own some commercial buildings we own some offices we own some shops and then we sort of basically over the last few years just realised that actually bigger stuff is a lot easier so we do a lot bigger things now. So instead of buying one single let, we'll just buy a block of 12 flats, a freehold block, because we still do one bit of paperwork. It's still one mortgage. It's still one deposit. It's still one solicitor. And actually, mortgage providers and lenders and finance people, it's much easier to get higher values and much less interest as well. Mm. So it's that was a mindset change as well, where we've we've actually started to realize now we're quite credible in what we've done. It's quite easy to do bigger stuff now. So we've, yeah, the minute we have... We have an office block converting to 14 apartments, which hopefully we'll start building next year if building prices level out. We have a guest house going through at the minute, planning to turn into 13 apartments, and all of these we hold. Mm. So our strategy has always been never to sell. We never sell anything, really. We don't flip anything. Um, and then we have a block of, yeah, 12 flats that should have completed really this week. I don't think it will now. I think it will go into the new year. And then we have two other biggish purchases that are semi-lined up for next year, but they're approximately two mil each. So... For instance, next year, we'll probably only buy f- four transactions, mm. but there'll be maybe eight to 10 million in total. And yeah. So we've sort of gone down that route now, really. And then our business, we employ a couple of people that do all our residential viewings for us and all of that. And a sort of byproduct of that was we source quite a lot of properties now, package them on because we're not necessarily buying all of those ourselves now. We're doing slightly different, but we're still viewing lots of houses. So. Mm. Yeah, that's been a sort of byproduct of what we do. And we have, yeah, a couple of our staff now sort of find the basic two-bed, three-bed terrace houses, 
source them for people. We can renovate them for people if we want to use our network and so on. Mm. Um, but yeah, for us personally, it's sort of just gone a bit, bit slightly larger and maybe less hassle again, using our time more wisely and using finance more wisely. And yeah, that's, that's sort of the route we're taking really. And we've always stuck to our goal. I mean, one of the things I always talk about is just not deviating really. I think that's what most people do in business generally wrong. Or if you find a niche, our, myself and Adam, my business partner, we're very focused on that. We don't deviate. Whatever's happening, we just don't deviate. The goal is there. It's always been there. We mm. talk about it quite regularly. We already set our goals for next year. We know what we're both doing. We know, and actually probably a quarter of our conversation about our goals next year is not deviating because I know yeah. there's going to be spare time to do things and there's opportunities come our way quite a lot now. And actually the best thing is to say no a lot of the time. Mm. Um, I probably say no a lot more than I say yes nowadays to opportunities just because it's, it's going to take us off our path. And actually, I think that happens a lot. They say the shiny penny syndrome and so on. People yeah. jump from strategy to strategy or new opportunities, new opportunity, or you think you've got time and you think I'll go and do that. Was actually... I think it's best to just pick one or two things and stick to your strategy and not deviate from that. Mm, mm. Um, we do have a new business opening next year <clears throat> related to property and finance, but that's something we've spoken about for years and we, it's it's quite quite a good synergy with what we already do and the industry we're in. And it, it does make sense for time and reward and what we own the risk and reward. Whereas, yeah, property and so on like that, we're quite... We're just boring in that sense. We just stick to what we're doing. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound boring at all. You say it's boring. Anyone listening but going, wow, oh my God, look at you know what you've done. But but I think a couple of things as you were talking sticking out for me was one, you started small and, and you you kind of built your confidence, your knowledge. And now of course you're doing big, big projects. Um yeah. and, and ironically, it's you're saying it's not that much more work to do those. No. But the reason why it's not much more work is because you've you've already you you've you've got your your stripes so to speak, from doing the smaller stuff. So I guess building the confidence and knowledge and your your network and your team and all of that good stuff allows you to do the bigger things in an easier way, doesn't it? Whereas if you'd gone straight in at that, it probably would have been a different story. Um, So I think on that point as well, when you start, I think for us, we started property as a business, not as a property company. We run it as a business. It just happens to be our commodity is is houses. So, And that's one point I've probably learned from mistakes myself in businesses is, Actually, it's better to spend money at the start and set things up properly, even when you really don't think you need it. Just knowing where you're going and actually the the systems and processes that give you. And even when we first set up, we set up a, a, a quite a large group structure for what we knew where it was going. We spent a lot on accountants, a lot on solicitors, yeah. a lot on those. And even we have our own CRM system. We spent money on it at the start. We 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 sort of started as a business in five years time, not where we were now and not just, oh, we're going to trade in property. Yeah. It is a business and we run it as a business now. Yeah. It just happens to be we buy and sell houses or not sell them, but in theory. Yeah. And I think that, I think you make a really valid point because one, that comes from your business background pre-property, I think, yeah. you know, that you, you've, you've started and ran businesses all over the place. So you've got that discipline. Um, but also, you, you know, I think you're right in that you do have to think around investing for growth. And actually, when you try and save a quid here, you can cost yourself big time, longer term, mm. can't you? Yeah, and, and I think that's that's something I would say about people who are getting into property is yes, you need to know the, you know, the ins and outs of property, which is sort of more the technical stuff, if you like. But general business knowledge and yes. an approach and a mindset to it as a business yeah. is is often missing sometimes from some people's toolkit, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. I've become uh, I've become quite excited about tax lately. Yeah. I've only shown you how old I'm getting. I turned forty <laughs> recently, so. Um, 
But yeah, and, and the same process. I've, I've become I've become excited about it because actually that's a, that's a real big business tool to what we buy and sell now. And yeah. if we're if we're going down service accommodation or capital allowances, we've had a few conversations, yeah. and there's there's some massive tax benefits and and. And just knowing that and learning that and having the people that back us up, that, that just, you're, you're straight away ahead of everyone in the game, really. So yeah. I think, yeah, I think just a business mindset has helped me massively from starting it up and just setting things up from day one and not cheaping out, like you say, on, on small things at the start, knowing where you're going. But again, it comes back to goals, not deviating, know where yeah. you want to be. Um, and yeah, probably just, I probably didn't do that enough back in the day in some businesses. I was just focused on growing a business and, well, back then you you just care about turnover. You're just trying to grow as many many staff. You sort of yeah. you class your your success as number of staff and turnover. And actually, nowadays, I'm probably the less staff and the more profit is what I'm more interested yeah, in. Yeah. Actually, it's yeah. completely flipped. So. Yeah, you're right. Because sometimes we, we we get fixated on more the vanity metrics. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so someone who's got a you know I don't know hundred million plus turnover business might only be taking home a million, yes. whereas someone who's got fifty million might be taking home ten million. Yeah. Well, hello, which would you rather have? You know. <laughs> and I think if, all, if I'm honest with myself, back in the day, some of that probably was vanity. I was growing a business, yeah, for for PR purposes. Really, it wasn't yeah. benefiting me. And some of the businesses you hit these sort of peaks and troughs, and where you plateau and you you realise that actually you're just taking on more staff and paying more staff and I'm not earning anymore. And it, it, it doesn't actually make sense. And mm. it, you do have to get to that realisation and then you probably either take it back to a point and charge more or you need to grow further to get to that point. And yeah, I think that's just maturity a bit. I think really I made a few mistakes with stuff like that. So uh, Let's talk about that then. <laughs> Let's talk about that, Stephen. Can you think? All my mistakes. Well, well, not all of them, but but because the whole point no, of doing do. the podcast is to try and inspire yeah. and, and support people, so that we can you know we can all learn from each other, can't we? And uh, and the reality is that we are going to fail at stuff. That's life. That's business. You know, not everything is going to go one hundred percent right, and uh, it's naive to think it will. But I think if you embrace that and go, I am going to fail yeah. at some some stuff, and then you you embrace yeah. that, you're you're much, much more likely to take a bit more risk and be comfortable with it yeah. and if you approach it as learning sometimes those worst moments I mean when I look back at some of the things that I've like failed at or I've got rejected or I didn't get the promotion or whatever it might have been at the time or even a relationship a personal relationship ending you know it can be horrible and you yeah. think it's the absolute worst thing and then how many times you look back and go god that was the best thing that could have happened you know and, and I think sometimes exactly. we don't embrace failure as much as we should do no. so let's talk Talk about yours. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I, yeah, I completely agree with that sentiment. I mean, it is again. It's, it's a bit easier in hindsight. Maybe you don't see it at the time, but yeah, any failures I've had or mistakes I've made ultimately are what what makes you and what you learn from. Mm. And I think, like you say, if you embrace that, I've always been, I've always been very much probably one of my biggest attributes. I say is quick decision making, um, but that comes with mistakes and that comes with ownership. I suppose mm. so for me. The biggest learnings is always I make quick mistakes so we can keep pushing forward, but then when it fails, I own it and I own the failure, and it's my fault regardless of who's done it. And I own it, and we and we carry on. And that <clears throat> for me, I didn't probably see I did that, but actually that's been one of my biggest strengths. I think long term, and that's probably one thing I always give people advice on is quick decisions because your staff need that, and the company need that, and people need a direction and a leader, mm. but you need to own it. 
So even if I give a manager a task to do and it's my decision and it goes horribly wrong, I'm going to own it, not them. And we'll sort it out and that's fine and we'll carry on. And so that's all, that, that served me well. I'd probably, I'd probably say in business, one of my personal biggest mistakes has been staying in businesses too long and not having an exit. Mm. So when I look back, I, if I had sold every business I ever owned after about seven years, that would have been the peak price I would have got. And mm. it, I would have been the most interested at that point and right time. And, if, and most I didn't. I left it too long. Right. And then at that point, you're always going to plateau as a company. Or if you hit a 10-year cycle, you're likely to hit some economical cycle or cyclical cycle at that point. So you're going to have a dip, you're going to have a readjustment, mm. realign the business and then go again. But but then you've got to start again like you were seven years ago. So I think for me now, <coughs> excuse me, we've got, we're starting up a new bridging loan company next year, a finance company. And the four of us that are involved in this, from day one, our biggest conversations before we set this company up, we spent more time agreeing our shareholders agreement and our exit Yep. And what's happening as an exit for all of us individually as a company than we have mm. actually starting the business. And that's quite key for me now. I think, yeah, a big mistake of mine has been either not getting out of it. You, you see selling a business or shutting a business down or closing a business or moving on to another business as a, a failure. And actually, it's not. You've got to realize your own personal cycles and energy levels as yeah. well. So I'm, I'm at sort of six, seven years. I'm still interested in the business. When it gets to eight, nine years, I'm, I'm, I'm actually probably not, if I was honest. Mm. I've, I've done what I wanted to do. And now I'm like, okay, great. Let's, let's go and do that again or do something else. Yeah. Like, so I think you've got to know your own, own personal energy levels of where you're at and also your business cycles and the, the economy cycle that you're likely, if you don't get out at a certain point, to hit something and you've got to be prepared mm. for that. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's been, a, that's been a big learning curve for me. And definitely, like we mentioned before, spending money up front. Yeah. So we grew a business in the, in the Middle East really quick, but we didn't spend money on systems and processes and stuff at the start. Tried to implement it four or five years in and it's twice as hard, 10 yeah. times the price, a nightmare really. And if we'd done it at the start, actually, you probably would have grown the business even quicker. Yeah. And I think even more so in this day and age than maybe 10, 15 years ago, systems, processes, mm-hmm. and, and tech, as it were, in your business is so important. And just bringing on staff and letting staff being able to learn, train, and use your systems rather than a person training them is quite important now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that protects you a lot as well. And looking after probably the other failures with staff, I mean, as you grow, staff management and people management becomes really, all I used to do, I'd say, is make decisions and people manage. That was pretty much it. And that, that's something I think, you, yeah, you have to learn or grow into and be patient with, but that is critical. And I think getting your key personnel in a company settled happy and on board with your vision and where mm. you're going that's critical if you can get the th- I sort of sounds a bit harsh really but you have a company of 30 40 staff ultimately there's three or four that are, are really critical to that yeah. business and the rest yeah they are and i value them but they are going to come and go whether i like it or not and there's not much i can do to implement their life whether they come and go in my mm. business whereas mm. your key three or four personnel if they're on board with me the company the vision and where we're going as a as a group they dispel that to everyone else and that 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 then just keeps going no matter how many other people come and go it doesn't matter yeah the vision and the mission is still being sort of spread through the company isn't it so that that was a good learning curve i think for me as well um and just valuing those staff and and everyone's values are different they don't not everyone's concerned about money not everyone's concerned about some people want a job title some people want extra holidays some people value their time with family more so Mm. it's just it's just trying to 
learn all of that. And probably as I became married and had kids, I maybe appreciated yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the staff we had with families and maybe a bit more than I did before. And um, just being a bit more flexible with that and giving them time and, and things with their kids does help massively. They don't need a pay rise. They need time with their kids. Yeah. And then you get it back tenfold. So, yeah, yeah. 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 No, there's some brilliant lessons there. And starting with the end in mind, that's what I always say when yes. I, do, when I yes. do advisory work and stuff. I'll always say, well, you know, what are you trying to achieve ultimately? Yeah. You know, do you want to exit? Is this a lifestyle business? How big do you want to be? You know, if you're planning on wanting to sell well then we need how we set things up now needs to ensure you've got that option because yeah. if you're trying to unpick it later you know legal entity structure all this kind of stuff which you know very well because uh, you do the advisory work as well and the consultancy work you know it can be it cost you a huge amount of money it's complex you can end up it's such a distraction from the core business as well at a time when if you're trying mm. to sell then the trading plummets because you're sorting all this other shit out then which you could have <laughs> done at the beginning it, you know much easier so give yourself the options but set it up in the right way starting with the end in mind and you're absolutely spot on because I remember when I was buying businesses in China you know again it's big big challenges how do you get your money out um you know so how you set set the shareholders agreement or you've almost got a plan it's, it's a bit like having a prenup you always got a plan plan for the divorce hope it never exactly. happens or an insurance policy you hope you never have to use it but it's there in case you do yeah. um so yeah no, so divorce is exactly the word artists <laughs> usually use yeah. they say that you've got to treat this this business as a divorce you're all getting into a marriage how many however many of you are there yeah yeah <clears throat> and there are, yeah it's exactly and it's probably more difficult in some instances yeah. so yeah, and that comes from learning as well. I mean, when you first start a business, the last thing you want to do is talk to your, your business partner or, or shareholders about everything that could go wrong and all the negative stuff. Because yeah. actually, it's quite a negative conversation. And yeah, you, it can you're be. Almost, you're almost in the point of me accusing you that you may yeah, yeah. screw me out of something, yeah. which is quite an awkward conversation sometimes. Yeah. But I think, again, you as you get as you get a bit more, I'm sure you, you, you get those conversations and yeah. people do and the people you interact with understand that. But... Yeah, I always say it's it, it, it's planning for the what ifs. Yeah. Let's cover off the what ifs, um, you know, and let's hope none of them happen. But in the event they do, we've not got any any issues now. It's all up front. It's all agreed, and yeah, then we can crack on with the things that we want to focus on because yeah. it's done in in the proper way. But no, you're absolutely right. Let me talk about um, business partners. Yes, because you and Adam have got a really successful partnership. Yeah. Um, you you both have quite different roles in the business. Yeah. So can you just explain how how you guys work together in your partnership? Yeah. Um, What's been important for, for that being successful? And I guess some tips really for people to look out for if they are getting into bed with someone yeah. as a, either as a joint venture or, you know, whatever, in whatever capacity so that, you know, people navigate through that in the right way. Yeah, yeah that's a really great question because I've had, I've had business partners that have not gone very well some that have gone tremendously well, some that have ended up in court. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a great conversation. I'd say you usually where I've, I what I personally found is is business partners have come out of some sort of friendship to start with, mm. um, which again people can say is good or bad. I actually think it's quite good because you would have had some history and some knowledge of each other and how you work and your own sort of personalities and quirks and how you work. So most have started from that, and then. I think personally where they work quite well is partners having slightly different traits. So yeah. myself and Adam, for instance, I'm, I'm very business-minded. I'm very pushing the company forward. I'm financially driven. I'm numbers driven. I'm detail driven. I'm tax, things like that. <laughs> I like the accountants. I like solicitors. I like getting those things involved and contracts and tying things up and dotting the I's, whereas actually Adam isn't that. And Adam's much more 
the he would much rather go and talk to a group of investors, for instance. So Adam mm. can deal with our investors, no problem. Deal with all our groups, all our structures. He loves doing meetings. He's a very face-to-face person. Doesn't want to do Zoom calls and calls and stuff like that. So we quite heavy, we quite naturally split our roles without actually deciding it. However, we do actually decide it. We're quite mm. specific about that. And as I mentioned earlier, that we're we've already set our goals for next year. So I think regardless of our friendship, we have to treat the business as a business. And that involves a shareholder meeting, whether it's mm. your mate or not. And that involves directors making decisions, that involves plans for next year and goals. So we're quite specific about that. We write those down, we have them up all the time. Mm. We pull each other up on that. Um, just seeing uh, your other half just shooting by the window <laughs> doing a nice little dance. Um, yeah, and that involves, and that involves us, us really sort of sticking to the plan together and pulling each other up on that plan as well. That's a key. Mm. And, and also, without writing a job title, we actually do semi have a job title yeah. because we write a job description and we write a job title for each other. And even though it's not maybe as detailed as you give a staff member, it bullet points 10 main things I need to do and 10 he does. And we mm. know that from day one. Mm. And I do think that's quite important. I'd say, I'd say probably when I look back, the things to be careful of it's probably not setting up at the start correctly. And yep. A good shareholders agreement. It's very. It's worth spending money on that. I mean, nowadays I'd probably get. I'd probably get our accountant involved initially, and then a solicitor to to firm it up and mm. legal it. And you will spend two or three thousand pounds, but it's worth it. Yeah. Um, especially when you've got kids. Especially when you're married. If the other yeah. half's not. If someone's got divorced or. Because there's a lot of horror <laughs> stories of. Well, you get divorced. Your wife actually, or your husband owns. Mm well, half of your half, which is core of mine. So what, what do we do then? Do we pay you out or do we sell the properties? Or what yeah, do we do? So yeah. There's a lot of other bigger questions to that. And a group structure can help with that. And we have a family investment company above that that helps that so we protect mm. each other. And that came from advice. I'd probably say the only thing I'd look out for now is the telltale signs to me is normally your friendship going a bit wider if you start a business and you're quite friendly and you do things outside of work mm. and then suddenly it stops, there's something not quite right there. Also, not talking enough about where you want to go in the future and your exit and where someone wants because my issues have always been I wanted something different to them but we didn't speak about it enough maybe yeah, okay. and you drift apart too much. Yeah. Um, and there's no issue if someone wants something different. You just got to discuss it and come up with something that's fair for everyone. So, and, and, and now I'd probably say the other thing I do focus on because of that is I do... Myself and Adam, especially in that business, we spend a, a bit of time making sure we do do things outside of work mm. so, because it's quite easy to fall into a habit of we only do social things when it's work or we yeah. only go and do social events when it's other people. Whereas we, once a week, minimum, we're always doing something together, whether it's golf or we go go-karting and we're going to do, like, we need to do something outside of work as friends and forget mm. the business. Mm. And that, that's, that's certainly quite well, I think. Yeah, interesting. Brilliant advice there. Let's talk about life partners a little bit because we've both got amazing partners. Very different. <laughs> so Chris has just been dancing past the window. So that's the kind of quality input that we get from Chris. No, but Chris is, 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 is my rock. He's my absolute, you know, I, one, I adore him. I, I love him to bits, but we're in our property business together. So we're life partners and yes. we're business partners. A bit different for you and Claudia. But um, still, I think having a strong partner and someone that's there with you um, often isn't talked about enough. And even though Chris and I are in our property business together, it's not always been that way. You know, we've both had big corporate careers and what have you, but Chris will always be 
you know, behind me at my side saying, go on, you can achieve anything, you know, really supportive, my rock really. But he's much more uh, an introvert, <laughs> I thought so last night, but his natural <laughs> style is more introverted. He he doesn't like being the lime, yes. being the limelight. He's very much, you know, there, solid, but his thought of going and doing a, you know, a Facebook live, he'd rather oh, eat his own <laughs> fingers, you know. Um, so we're very different, very different personalities, very different styles. But I couldn't achieve what I achieve and we couldn't achieve what we achieve as a team without him being with me. And I think for Claudia, you know, often people don't talk about the importance of a partner because yeah. uh, cause like business is life and it's not all separate, is it? You know, so, so talk about how, how, how you guys work. and, and Massively important point, I'd say. And yeah. we, we were just talking there about business partners and mm. getting on the same page and choosing about where you're going and so on. I think you actually do need to do that with your, your, your wife or your life partner, yeah. whoever that is, yeah. your husband and so on. And yeah, I mean, for me, I don't think I would be where I am now if it wasn't for Claudia. It sounds a bit cliche and a bit cheesy, mm. but genuinely me, what's difficult, I think maybe more so for a man is when you own a business and you... you've got to constantly give out this persona to staff and everyone that you're in control, you're not stressed, you make decisions, you're a leader. You do actually need a bit of emotional support and and, and just a bit of comforting sometimes, but you can't do that in a business environment. So for me, especially having someone that backs me to the hilt, no matter what, takes risks with me, no matter what, will like literally push forward with me, would never say no to anything, that is it. For me, I have no burden of any business knowing that I've got to go and please my other half when I get back or go and ask permission or check it's mm. not going to affect our life and mm. so on. And that, that for me, just liberates you. You're free. You can just do everything. And you can. there is obviously element of risk. I am a risk taker, but it gets a bit more calculated, I suppose, as you get kids or family. Mm. But she would still allow me to take a lot more risk than most people would. And I mean, mm. back in the day when I first met Claudia... She didn't need me. I'm fully successful in her own right, own house, yeah. own job, own everything. Ran big companies and so on. So it, it it wasn't that we needed each other, but we do need each other. And then, I mean, back in the day, she actually just gave up everything to come with me on a journey abroad to see if it would work or not, which in hindsight, when you look back, was crazy, really. But that just showed the level of commitment to to our cause, not just me, and, yeah. and to taking a risk and, and backing me. Mm. And yeah, it's it's... It's massively important. It's massively important. I talk about stuff with us all the time and I talk about the business with her all the time and where mm. we're going and how that maybe affects us and where do we want our family to go and where do we want this. And I think I think knowing that we're both doing this for our families good and yeah. our kids good and to better our lives, that helps. But yeah, I, I, if, if I had to sort of past decisions by and I was I was worried about taking a risk because my, my wife mm. wouldn't support me I, I would no no way be where I am now mm. it's hugely undervalued and probably not even talked about enough but yeah, yeah it's, it's I need that badly and you need that emotional backup as well yeah. and occasionally no matter how confident you think you are you, you need someone to actually tell you you're doing good like yeah. you, it's very rare that, that I would get a pat on the back necessarily depending what position you're in you know the, the, the MD doesn't get a pat on the back that's just his job the owner yeah. of a company doesn't <laughs> doesn't get a pat on the back that's what he does do you know what I mean <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, and, and we all need we all need a little well done every now and again yeah yeah and also sometimes uh, hang on a minute you're getting a bit cocky there Very you true. know which, which is probably just me <laughs> but no sometimes you know if I'm like or if I'm getting out a kilter and it's all work and it's all business yes. 
you know, Chris is brilliant at saying, right, okay, that's great, Jeanette, but hang on a minute. Pull you back. We need some time or, or you know, or you're actually being a bit, you know, you've been over, overly confident or you're not overly confident, that's the wrong word, but, you, you know, you're kind of pushing too much, you, yes. you, you know, and actually you need to, you need to pull back a little bit. So, time. yeah, because I need that because I, I, you know, I'm a strong personality. I need someone that will be by my side and will be there, my biggest champion, but will also say, hang on a minute, you're out of order here or yeah. you need to, to rein it in. Yes. And and I think that that honesty and that support is just invaluable. Yeah. And we're both very lucky, aren't we? You know, Claudia is amazing. Chris, Chris is brilliant. And, you know, very, very happy um, to, to have them in our lives, really. No, We're very I lucky. I couldn't agree more. And the, the taking time off, especially, and taking time for your family and your other half and so on is, is key. And you do need your other half on to pull, pull you up on that. Definitely, definitely. So, um, no, that's brilliant. So I've got a few final questions. Okay. I could chat to you all day, <laughs> I could, I could. So when you look back over your illustrious career, um, and obviously you're, you, you're nowhere done yet, that's for sure, Um can you think of the best piece of advice that you've ever been given or a really good piece of advice that sort of stayed with you? Uh, I, would, I would probably say I've probably given the, the best and the not so great Ooh. advice was the same thing. So I was told back in the day to follow your passion, mm. but I was also told not to follow your passion. And actually, it's probably the best and worst advice ever because when I look back... Great. If I if I was passionate about natural stone, it would have been the greatest business in the world. But the likelihood of you running a business or setting up a business that you are totally, totally passionate about is very slim. Mm. So for me, it was like, well, don't get hung up on that. Like, I'm not in love with natural stone. I'm not in love with kitchens. I'm not in love with interiors. It's not possibly you are. You're an interior designer and you love that. That wasn't me. Mm. But the idea of doing a business that gives you the byproduct of what you're passionate in, yeah. that did work for me. So if I only followed a business that I was passionate in, I'd never have done what I've done. Mm. And then not doing, not following my passion actually enabled me to do what I've done that then does let you do your passion. Yeah. So yeah, I'd probably say it's the, the best and worst advice at the same time. <laughs> That in the travel industry is called a bog off. A buy one, get one free. See, there we are. I'll get on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, fantastic. So, the final question then, Stephen, if I may. What yeah. does brave, bold, brilliant mean to you? I would say brave, brave is brave enough to not listen to people, um, not, not take too many people's advice. Um, bit controversial, but I always feel like people's opinions are only really worth what what their value is if mm. so I think not listening to other people being brave enough to just go your own way do your own thing go against the grain annoy people that's brave I think bold without fail is to actually just do it I mean honestly we talk about uh, we talk about this day in and day in in property business life training everything majority of people just don't actually do anything so we can talk about it as long as we like actually being bold enough to take the action is harder than anything the rest will fall in place. If you don't take any action, you've got no chance. So, and then brilliant, I'd probably say is do enough that makes you, I don't, I don't always think about being brilliant for myself. I want to be brilliant for other people's lives, your staff lives, be brilliant for them, be brilliant for your family, be brilliant for your kid. Be, try and just be brilliant for lives more than just yourself, maybe. And that, that, that maybe gives you a bit of a richer future should I say fantastic <laughs> so all of that amazing advice um, and obviously you do a lot of consultancy and advisory work now as well don't you so you yes. can share your hard-earned knowledge and experience <laughs> with other people <laughs> so where can people find you Stephen yeah the usual channels really I mean obviously our company's Domo Developments Domo Partners on the internet 
uh, Facebook, social media, Instagram. I'm all under Stephen Pardo Official. LinkedIn, I'm on Stephen Pardo Official as well. I try and keep the titles the same. So yeah, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, any of those really. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Stephen. You are most most definitely brave, bold and brilliant. (laughs) Cool. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review. 